I would say without a doubt is, you know, making change in healthcare is really difficult. There's so much inertia in the system. So don't expect it to happen without years of focused effort and, and many obstacles across the way. And, you know, if you're an adventurer like I am and, you know, you start a journey not knowing where you'll end up and you're okay with that, go ahead and do it. I mean, it can be so rewarding. I mean, as a health tech entrepreneur, you have a chance to influence countless lives. I'm not sure you have other, any other way. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Steve Dimmer, CEO of Curvafix. Steve holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from San Diego State University and an MBA from the University of Washington. He has over 30 years of experience building medtech companies, including a handful of startups and stints at several large multinationals. Currently, Steve is leading Curvafix, a medical device company focused on developing innovative solutions for orthopedic procedures. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, stay focused on your mission, but don't put on blinders. Be open to exploring new opportunities and pivoting when necessary in your startup journey. Second, don't be afraid to ask questions and listen to feedback from potential investors. Use this feedback to improve your pitch and strengthen your narrative. Third, develop a tailored regulatory strategy for your specific therapeutic area and assemble a team of domain experts to help you successfully navigate the often complex regulatory landscape. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recently released the second volume of MedSider Mentors, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last six months or so. Look, it's tough to listen or read every single MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of Medsider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of AliveCore, and so many others. In addition, as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medtech and health tech entrepreneurs. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, Steve, uh, welcome to uh, Medsider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the invitation to share our story and and uh, anything I can do to help uh, help educate your your audience on uh, on what it is to be a medical device entrepreneur. So. Yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, to to learning a little bit more about kind of what you're building at Curvafix as well as just you know your your journey right uh, over the past uh, you know couple couple of decades uh, building other uh, medical device companies. So uh, with that said, Steve, I, I recorded uh, kind of a brief bio at the outside of this of this of this interview, but would love to kind of hear hear from the horse's mouth, you know, so, so to speak. Uh, would love to love sure. for you to kind of touch on at least at a high level, kind of your your broad experience leading up to uh, leading up to your 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 role as, as CEO of Curvafix. Sure, sure. So I have a, a technical background originally. So I'm I'm a, I'm a recovering engineer, basically. You know, 30 plus years in in medical devices, and doing uh, my first startup actually over three decades ago. So it's not a couple decades; it's a few <laughs> decades of experience. 
And, uh, you know, I've done some things that I think have kind of made a difference in my career. I, I joined a startup back in uh, 2000, uh, moved me up from Southern California to, to Seattle, uh, joined as, as founding vice president of, of, of Calypso Medical. So it was a radiation targeting system for radiation oncology. At that time, you know, it's great, helped build the business. A few years into it, I thought, you know, I'd like my own shot at, at uh, starting and, and running a, a startup. So I did that. I partnered with a, a clinician out of uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and we started Nuvera. I left my job, uh, started raising money in uh, January of, of 2009. So, you know, despite <laughs> the financial crisis we had, uh, 18 months later, I had a term sheet from a, a top-tier uh, venture capitalist, and, and we got uh, we got Nuvera off the ground, which which was great. Ran that for about eight, 18 months afterwards, about five years into it f- for me. And uh, then I left, uh, did an entrepreneur in residence for a division of Johnson & Johnson. So I've also been inside the world's largest medical device company as, as an advisor and uh, uh, for them, helped them look at some new technology, help them understand a white space. For me, it, it really helped me understand how they think about, uh, about startups. And along the way, I got uh, as a favor to a local venture capitalist, I went up to to visit with a, a surgeon up in, in uh, Vancouver, Canada, who had an idea. He was kind of a frustrated uh, surgeon who had been struggling with a particular problem his whole career. Dr. Robert Meek, uh, kind of an inspiring guy. He, he kind of founded and built the orthopedic trauma department uh, at Vancouver General. And uh, he said, that there's got to be a better way to fix fractures of the pelvis. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the journey, but uh, that was kind of the beginning of Curvifix. I started out doing some consulting for the VC and then, you know, several years later decided I was going to take it on as a project and focus on it full time. So that's my background. So five different startups, all in different areas of medicine, uh, a few of them pretty much from scratch. Got it. Got it. And when, so, so when you went to, to have that, that first conversation and, and, and started digging a little bit deeper on Curvifix, um, was, that, was that while you were uh, in EIR at, at, at J&J then? It was, yeah. Oh, okay. So the okay, ER for me, the way I set it up was, was uh, I'm not moving to New Jersey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll stay based in Seattle. And it was, it was pretty much a halftime gig. So I was, I was the person who could give them kind of an outside perspective inside of the company. Uh, and they had an area of medicine they wanted to learn about. And, and you know, they're, they don't really do things from scratch. So they wanted me to kind of help them think about it. And where it ended up, I ended up kind of educating them on a space and told them to take a look at a company and they ended up buying the company. So it was kind of fun. I did it for about 18 months. So. Got it. Got it. Cool. Cool. And then, so, so we're recording this in early 2023 when you started, uh, uh, started, you know, taking a harder look at Curvifix, this was kind of 2016, 2017 timeframe. So about well, six years ish ago or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. T- yeah. 2017, I decided, you know, if, if we were going to make a go at this, it needed focus. So yeah. that, that's, that's when I jumped in. Okay, cool. Awesome. Sounds good. I just kind of wanted to, to, to set the stage for, you know, in, in terms of the, the, the timeline. So uh, without getting too far into the weeds, Steve, give us a sense for, for Curvifix, right? Like what, what are you, what are you building? You know, what, what is it, what does it solve for? And r- really maybe tell us a little bit, you, you touched on kind of the, the origin story, but would love to maybe, you know, go, go a little bit deeper, deeper on that. Sure. Sure. So I'll step back a bit. So, so your pelvis is, it's a complicated, you know, set of bones that are curved. And it's got to support most of the human body weight. Uh, you've probably heard of hip fractures. So, you know, yep. but the hip is actually the top of your femur. It's one of your long bones. 
And, uh, you know, hip fractures are, are commonly fixed. There's been a lot of innovation over those for about 30 years, and they've gotten really good at fixing them. The, the pelvis, there really hasn't been much innovation over the last period of time, the 30 years where they're innovating in hip. They haven't done it in pelvis. Basically, what surgeons have are, are straight screws that really have dramatic limitations in, in a complex curved bone that has to support most of human body and, and bone plates, which require expense, expensive, lengthy surgery with, with all its drawbacks. So, so if, I'm a, if I break my pelvis today, um, I'm in one of two types of patients. The first are high-impact trauma patients. You or I take our motorcycle and wreck it. We'll go to a, a level one trauma center. They'll put us back together. They'll, if we're lucky, they'll use straight screws. They'll use a lot of them. And then they'll tell us, you need to stay off your feet for six weeks while this heals. And then you can start walking again. The second cohort of patients, which is, which is growing at 9%, and that is actually the, the biggest problem today, and, and probably the thing that got me most excited about Curvifix, are patients who have something called fragility fracture of the pelvis. What that means is they're, they're old, right? Their bones are weak. 80% of these patients are women. And, and I'll give you an example. A woman who's 60 years old, when she turns 80 years old, she'll have a nine times greater chance of breaking her pelvis. And when she turns 90 years old, that's 27 times greater. So there's 150,000 of these patients every year who break their pelvis. And what really struck me as dramatic is that same woman, and, and these are ground level falls. You know, the, this elderly woman, she slips and falls in the shower or she just falls from a ground level at home. If she breaks her hip, which we've all heard about, those have been common. 95% chance they'll receive fixation, which means they'll put a device inside of the bone. It'll hold the bones together with, with minimal motion. And it's really the bone motion that causes pain, or pain. And when you have pain, you stop moving. That's been pretty well solved with hip fractures. With pelvis, on the other hand, those technologies I talked about, those 30 years old technologies, which are really pretty straightforward and, and simple, don't solve the problem. Only 10% of those patients today receive surgery. Got it. So, so there's 90% of those patients, probably 135,000 patients in the U.S. today who, you know, you take a 70- and 80-year-old woman, you put her on bed rest or you put her in a bed and you say, please don't move. Here's some pain meds. This will heal. For six weeks or longer, many of those patients don't recover. They have multiple bad things that happen to them. Got it. So, Got it. So yep. the vision here is to put something in the bone that's minimally invasive, that holds the bone together with minimal motion. Um, and I can go into the details, but when that happens, pain is mitigated, patients get up and move. And that's what we're about at Curvifix, restoring mobility for those elderly patients. We think we can 80 plus percent of those will benefit from it. So it's almost a billion dollar market just in a, of itself. And for high impact trauma, we can solve problems and get patients up moving like no other technology can, but so that's, that's kind of our market. Got it. I know, I know you touched on kind of that, that second cohort that you mentioned, right? That's much larger, appears to be growing pretty, pretty, you know, the prevalence seems to be pretty high. It reminds me of uh, one of my business partners, uh, Brady Hatcher, who runs Switchback Medical as part of our, our accelerator uh, at, at Big Sky. He had a snowmobile accident this past, this past winter and fractured. Wow. I think I'm pretty sure he fractured his pelvis and it's like, okay. I mean, and he's pretty, pretty, you know, he's in mid forties, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty fit guy. And it's just like, it's, it, I mean, it, no mobility. I mean, it's, it's just tough. I mean, cause it's to your point, it's just all, all his weight sits on that. So it's just, it really prevents a lot of, 
lot of issues. It, it uh, makes me wonder if he's if he's if he's checked into Kerbafix. You, you, yeah. you always you always have weight on your pelvis. Yeah. If you're standing, you do. That's obvious. If you're sitting, you do. It's on your isthral tuberosity, and even if you're lay, lying down, you do. Yeah. So, so these patients are, are never comfortable. And your friend may have, if he's lucky, he went to a place that does straight screws. There's a few specialty places that do a reasonable job. But but he may have been told, and standard for care for him would have been six six weeks of mobility immobility afterwards. Yeah. yeah. With with Curvifix, with the strong fixation, patients can get up and move very quickly after surgery. And these include fragility fracture patients who basically the next day get up and walk. Where you know they may have gone six weeks, they may have gone two years in the system, being pushed around from provider to provider. They get Curvifix. Uh, we, we really do help them. So it, it's it's really an inspiring contribution to medicine, humanity we're doing. And it. it's, it's very fun to watch it come together. Oh, I bet. I bet. So, so and just, just one, one follow-up question before we kind of like re- rewind the clock here and a little, learn a little bit more about your, 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 uh, your professional journey, as well as just, you know, uh, what you've experienced kind of build, building up Curvifix. Um, from a patient's perspective, do I, I mean, do I get this done in an outpatient sort of sort of center? Uh, is, is the surgery pretty, you know, relatively minimally invasive? Like, can you, can you touch on that? Well, yeah, it, it depends. So if you're a high impact patient, right, you've been in a major car accident, your friend with a snowmobile, motorcycle, you know, fall from a height, you're very likely going to go to a level one trauma center. You're probably going to have other issues in addition yep. to your pelvis, right? So, so that's more complicated. If you're a woman who slipped and fall at home, a fragility fracture patient, that's a minimally invasive. You probably don't have any other issues. Single small incision, 15, 20 minutes per implant. A lot of these patients need two. Okay. Um, and you'll probably stay over the hospital one night or so. We've had a couple that have been outpatient procedures. Uh, I think longer term, it, it could go there, but they're probably going to watch and make sure you've done a good recovery, you know, one or two nights and then send you home. It won't be... Uh, you know, <laughs> some week long process or something like that. Yeah. Well, or, or months, right? Yeah. So, so we've had patients who have not been able to, to walk for, you know, extended periods of time, six weeks. We've had some that have one that recent one, our, our last press release was two years. She broke her pelvis. It didn't heal. And, wow. um, you got treated by Dr. Brett Christ, uh, University of Missouri, right? Good middle of the country doc. Um, really great academic. And, and that patient got up and walked the next day for the first time to pass physical uh, therapy the next day. Her pain scores went from a nine, which is really high, to about a three. Wow. So 12 hours from surgery. So, so that's, that's a really cool thing about bone fixation. If it's done well, it really does alleviate pain. And the implant shares the load with the bone. So these patients can get up and move while it's healing. Got it. Got it. That's, that's, uh, that, that's cool. Um, and then give us a sense before we, uh, before we, um, we step inside the old med site or time machine here, um, give us a sense for kind of where, where you're at. sounds like you're, you're actively commercializing then the, the, the right. device. Yeah. We, we just recently got our second FDA clearance. Our first one was in 2019. Okay. Um, and, uh, we did a small clinical study before we commercialized. We want to make sure we're ready. Uh, we really have done uh, we're about a year into commercialization. We just crossed our first million in sales. And I will say for, for anybody who's going to start a medical device company or med tech company, that first million is the hardest. <laughs> so we've crossed that, that chasm, uh, you know, a couple hundred patients that we treated, you know, 270 some implants. So the technology is quite robust and uh, 
the company's ready to to go from our pilot launch, which we did last year. We, we always do these things in phases to expanding it. Okay, uh, cool. Kind of country countrywide. So to your friend on the snowmobile, there's a good chance he may not have had access to Curifix. You know, some some small number of years from now, it, it, that won't be the case. That, that's their next stage. Cool, cool. That 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 certainly uh, that that helps that helps a lot. Um, and if you're listening to this interview, um, and don't get a chance to read the uh, you know the the summary of this uh this conversation on Medsider, uh, the website's Curva Fix. So C U R V A Fix dot com. C U R V A F I X dot com. Uh, really cool website. Um, some really nice visuals. Uh, um, as well as uh videos that kind of uh, explain the technology and uh, and the procedure as well. So CurvaFix dot com is uh is is the website. So with that said. Steve, let's go back and learn a little bit more about uh, your your experience, right? You have built several uh, several startups, spent some time as an EIR, and now 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 leading uh, leading uh, you know Curves, Curvifix, which you know, uh, is well on its way to uh, to kind of m- making a dent in the in the orthopedic space. So, um, when you think, what, f- first question I, I've got um, is is really with respect to companies in the earliest stages, right? So we're we're, we're pre you know we're pre uh, maybe pre clearance, uh, definitely pre uh, pre pre clinical. When you think about that that stage of an early, uh, you know, a, 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 that that sort of that life cycle stage of a of a of a med tech company, where do you see most you know founders and or CEOs make the make the biggest biggest mistakes? Uh, that, that's a good question. So is it, is it pre-series A? Yeah, yeah, kind about? of seed seed maybe yeah maybe maybe you know pre-series A kind of that 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 phase. Yeah, yeah. so I, I would probably turn the clock back even from there. So I would say first of all is. Make sure you're solving a big problem that whoever your customer is understands is a problem before you go ahead and even get to that stage. Because because these startups are, are not easy. They require kind of focused dedication and 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 struggles and learning and conquering. And you know, you gotta be a bit of an adventure at heart to want to lead one of these companies, especially early stage, because it can take dramatic changes in different directions. So so number one is Make sure that's the case. Go out and validate with whomever your customer is early. Ask them a lot of questions. Make sure you're on track. And then the other thing I would say is, is once you're there, look for opportunities. So it, there comes a time when you're trying to solve a problem, trying to develop a technology to, oh, we have a technology. We've, we think it'll solve the first problem. Then ask yourself, is that really the problem you should be solving? Or do you have a bigger opportunity that you didn't know about because you weren't deep into this. So I'll say with Curvifix, that is fragility fractures of the pelvis, right? I, I started this as kind of a consulting gig and a favor for a, v, a local VC. And I didn't really get excited about it because high impact trauma is great, but it's for pelvis, but it's not a huge market, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's got other solutions and in many cases work okay. Fragility fractures, we're an enabling technology, right? So, and it's a, it's a bigger market, it's growing and it's it's very easy to explain with that analogy with, with hip fractures. So, so it kind of gave us what we need to kind of kind of bring it up to the next level. So there's a lot of noise out there, and there's more and more noise every day with, with med tech and health tech and devices. Make sure you're going to stand out in a way where you're solving a problem that can't be solved other ways. The market's more than big enough to justify an investment. And you're, with all that's the case, you can pull in the right investors and the right team and make it happen. If you don't have those fundamentals, and I can go deeper if it makes sense, it's going to be a struggle. And you may find out a few years later, gosh, you know, we knew that a few years ago and 
maybe I should have been working on something else. You don't want to do that, right? There's an yeah. opportunity cost of these. So, so I like to go for the Achilles heel early. I like to challenge the thing that's most likely to make it fail. And if it survives all those challenges, you should do it. Yeah. Great. That's, so, that's so. yeah. Such, such a great point, it's especially around. Um, I mean, it sounds relatively straightforward, but uh, to to your point, you, you need to be solving like uh, not only a, a, a fundamental problem, right, but a, a problem that that serves a, a large market, right? Because all of these, whether you're in pure play medical device or maybe you know more health technology, regardless, it's it's almost always going to require a lot of capital, right? You're going to have to have you're going to you're going to I mean, unless you're just uh, you know sort of fil- filthy rich or want to take the, take the risk yourself you're going to need investment partners and uh, it's going to be extremely difficult to get uh, buy-in from those partners. If you're not solving a real need uh, with a, a very large addressable market, because at the end of the day, you've got to make it, it's got to make sense to them, right. From a, from an investment standpoint, right. They've got, they've got LPs that they need to, uh, that they need to kind of, uh, you know, provide a return for. And if you're not, if you're not, if, if the math doesn't work, right. It's going to be extremely hard to, to get them on board. The, the answer is no, and you won't get the money. Pretty simple. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very, very simple. But, but oftentimes, you know, ignored, right? I mean, you, you like, I, 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 you know, chat with a fair. As I imagine you do too. If you know, chat and discuss this with a fair amount of uh, early stage, you know, medtech entrepreneurs, and they're oftentimes so sold on on the problem they're trying to solve for, and this idea or this technology mm-hmm. that they maybe have prototypes for, and they just it's hard for them to overcome the fact that it's just it's 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 a relatively small market, you know, and it may be it may, it may solve a real need, but if it's just a really really small market, um, you know, it's just going to be a really really challenging uh, you know path path forward, um, you know, if if you can even you know even if there is a is a is is a path forward to begin with, so right. yeah, such a such a good point, and I. And your your other your other um, comment around um, sort of listening and be, being far enough in in the weeds, right? And listening to feedback to understand, oh, there's this other this other kind of market here, right? I was like originally maybe this thing sounded like it was is was positioned for you know very acute trauma, right? But there was other this other you know sort of much broader, bigger, massive market opportunity, you know, with a r- very real problem uh, to, to solve for. And just, you know, by listening to, to feedback, you're able, to, you're able to kind of be, be flexible and kind of pivot pivot towards that other more, you know, compelling, compelling opportunity. Well, it's, it's, we were staging it, right? Yeah. So we started this as a helping the VC out and then doing a little exploratory work. And, uh, you know, we didn't buy in, I didn't buy in until, until kind of, I knew we had something else. So, some of that just comes with experience, and I think the best entrepreneurs are really kind of kind of self-critical and uh, you know critical of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you need to be to be good at it. If you're just drinking your own Kool-Aid, you may be up for you know finding out later that that uh, you weren't right. Yep. Early yep. on, it, it's best to bring in critics, ask them to be critical, you know, in nice ways, and, and learn because. In those learnings, there may be other opportunities, or you may decide, hey, this isn't really kind of what I thought it was. The sooner you understand it, the sooner you can decide what to do. So yeah, yeah. be as proactive as possible. Yeah, healthy. It's a healthy balance between, you know, being optimistic, but also kind of being your biggest critic too, right? Uh, kind of a totally. careful, <laughs> careful totally. balance. But, you know, one yeah. of the other things that you mentioned, Steve, too, is... um. This this idea that you you've got to be solving a real a real pain point right that's something that's obvious that when you're talking with an end user right it sort of it, it resonates you know and and I I bring that up because if you find your you know if you're listening to this and you find yourself having these conversations and 
you're really struggling to sort of connect the dots for the end user and trying to get them over over the to really just even understand the problem. Man, I think you probably need to maybe take a step back and understand, you know, are you what what like what are you what are you trying to build? What are you trying to solve for, right? Not not that it can't be not whatever you're working on can't can't be done per se, but if you're having a really difficult time convincing someone that a problem exists, oof, that's a that's a you know, yeah, yeah, no, that's, no, a, that's a tough I, I totally agree. <laughs> and then you convince them that you have a solution to a problem they didn't think they had. Yeah. It, it it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's much better to to maybe find a different problem you should act yourself if that's what you should be thinking about right right yeah that's a that's a really good point Let, let's talk a little bit you you mentioned the the second 15 k uh 15k clearance that you guys received i think in late late last year late late 2022 this topic of regulatory right sometimes it can be it can it can seem pretty daunting right uh depending on on the therapeutic arena you're working on but it's you know the, the waters can be kind of choppy sometimes and it's it's uh you know, fairly, uh, fairly subjective, right? Depending on who you talk to. So when you when you think about navigating the, those waters, and again, maybe frame this up around, you know, seed, Series A kind of land, yeah. where you're you're, yeah. you're kind of just beginning to figure this you know, your your approach out. You know, do you have a couple pieces of advice for other you know entrepreneurs or, or you know medtech start or CEOs that are in that in that same boat? Yeah, so, so I think it's really smart to look at comparative companies, and if there aren't comparative companies, you may have some serious challenges in your hands. So. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple of examples. So, so Nuvera, we knew it was a PMA. We knew it was a long track clinical. We knew it was a long track regulatory, right? So that that one is probably more straightforward. It's a you know huge huge market, but huge huge obstacles regulatory wise to get there. But you knew and you understood them. Curvafix, on the other hand, you know for us there's a there's a significant question there, and it was one of the early risks. Again, I said to be critical about. So could we get 510K clearance without doing a clinical study? That was the question. Could we get it based on standard testing versus kind of comparative d- devices? Uh, straight screws or, or, or rods that are used in long bones, right? Those are kind of the two comparative devices. So we are very similar, but we're different in one key way, right? We're flexible when we go in and we're locked in a curve shape. That's the only way we're different. So we went out and you know interviewed some some regulatory experts who, who understood this stuff and didn't have a background in orthopedics at the time, but um, we got enough confidence that that makes sense. So we made it a priority for us to get regulatory clearance before we did anything else. Hmm. So we, we built kind of the minimum viable devices that we could do the testing to make sure we passed the standards with the comparative devices. We got good data. We wrote up our 510K and we submitted it. Got it. So, Got it. And, and so those, it, those regulatory. There's a longer story I could keep going on this because <laughs> what happened next is, is important. So yeah, no, no, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd, oh, love, to, I'd love to go there, right? Because um, I mean, this is a common cha- challenge, right, with any any device company where you're 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 similar, but you're you're just different enough, right? And and so you've got to make this argument oftentimes through a five ten k, you know, uh, s- submission to FDA, and. You know, you can have as many pre-subs as you want leading up to that, but ultimately, you're not really going to get definitive guidance until you actually just submit, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. when it. So, so, so that is yeah. a strategy question. We decided no pre-subs. No pre-subs. Okay. No, no pre-subs because the standards are the standards. We knew what the comparables were. We knew what we needed for an indications freeze. That was all clear. Got it. We, Got it. You know, our differences were, were just those small number of things, and. We needed to prove they didn't cause any new questions of safety or efficacy, which we thought was doable. So, so we put together our submission. We did it. Okay, you may ask, could we have done some pre-subs? Well, you can look at it both ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure. On this one, that's that's what we, we, we thought was the right case. With Nuvera, we 
tons of pre-subs, right? Different. <laughs> and we got back some questions. And initially, it was very favorable. We went, wow, this is great. We're going to get it. Uh, then there was a period of time that we got a, another round of questions in from the, the chief medical officer. And they, they were good, reasonable questions. But they were a little bit outside of what he really should have been asking regulatory-wise. So there was a publication that was brought up. And that the lead author on that was actually on our surgeon advisor board. <laughs> so he's using a publication kind of to, to get us to do some other things that we didn't think were appropriate. And, and we had that the person wrote the paper. So we said, all right, you know, we, we got in a good solid regulatory attorney. Um, we figured out that, you know, we had, we're in the right. We decided, okay, let's do a meeting at FDA. We'll bring this doctor and we'll run through this with them and educate them. So, wrote up this very nice response, you know, all these things. It wasn't unreasonable what they're asking. It's just, you know, here are the regulations and, and here's what we're trying to do and all those types of things we had to sort through. And in the end, they read it and they said, no, you're good to go. So mm. we got it. But but it, we got exactly what we asked for with no changes. So, so we, we were in the right. But, you know, it took a lot to understand, are we in the right? <laughs> what is the law? What's appropriate here? What do we do? And that took nine months, right? So... Nine months. And it was a very painful nine months because you don't know that you're going to get it. And then we got it. And we got everything. So that allowed us to help help get what we needed, that and a couple patients. And we had enough to raise Series B. The second round was really straightforward. It's been solid clinical. We haven't had any issues out in the field. And we got it in 70 days. So yeah, that, that that's great, and, and I want to I want to be mindful of time and not get too stuck on regulatory. But this is such an interesting topic, and some of your, your feedback is I think is extremely valuable. Um, because uh, you know, I, I, for a couple a couple main reasons. One is that um, you know, you you made the the point earlier about you went you went straight to to submission versus doing presubs, and so many people almost think it's almost like a mandate or it's a must that you do presubs, and it's like well, they, they can be valuable, but you strategically said. Mm, no, I think we're actually going to go. I think we're going to go go straight to to submission, and I think that's that's really really helpful for other other people that are listening to this. Is like you don't always have to do presubs. No. I mean, it's not it's not no. always black and white, and it may make sense not to. Every yeah. other company we have, but but this one we decided no. This this looks straightforward. Other companies that are you know not the same as us, but we're also different from standards in different ways. Got it. So on this one, let's not create more work for us. Let's not get other you know things from FDA and or have un- unquestion- uncomfortable questions FDA asks us on the spot. We Let's just do what we think is right, and we got it. Yeah. But but my advice for anybody doing a novel technology, it's going to take longer than you think. Hmm. Get get a bunch of experts, and you know if you're not entirely comfortable, get another expert too, because it's, it's really important that you get it. Yeah. The the other, you know, as, as you were kind of describing uh, that scenario, right, which played out, it sounds like over the over almost a year, like nine, nine months. Yeah. I think that that's also just just to help, um, you know, folks understand your your approach was was a bit different, right? I mean, it was strategic, but it was a bit different than, you know, having one to two presubs in advance of submission, et cetera. But mm-hmm. I, I think it, it's helpful, you know, if you're if you're going into that and, and you're going to try to make an argument for, you know, in this instance, a non-clinical 510K, you need to understand that you, you're going to have to make it. This is going to be an argument, right? You're going to, you're going to have to convince yeah. others and it's not just going to be, you know, what, what you say, you're going to need to bring a team around you. Right. And you, you, you mentioned you had a, sounds like a pretty impressive, you know, sort of roster of folks around you, including those on your medical advisory board. That That's all the above. Helps, yeah. That helps substantiate and justify, you know, the, the argument, which I think is crucial. You know, it sounds like that ultimately like really, really helped, you know, kind of w- win the day ultimately is, 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 uh, is that fact. We got exactly what we asked for. So, mm-hmm. and, for the right reasons, we weren't, you know, 
it, we, yeah. data, data facts, logic, and reason prevailed. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.